And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. Apart from good morning, there are many ways I could greet you this morning. It's the 11th day of the Christmas season, so I could greet you with Merry Christmas. It's the fifth day of a new year and a new decade, so I could greet you with Happy New Year. But in light of our text from Matthew's Gospel this morning, I've chosen to greet you like this. Joyful Epiphany. Welcome to Christ the King Anglican Church at Crimson Tees on this day when we are celebrating, one day early, the ancient Christian feast day of Epiphany. The Church began the annual celebration of Epiphany in the second century, that is, in the 100s AD. Sometime in the 300s AD, Christmas Day also became an annual feast day in the Church. But Christmas has never been just a day, but a season of 12 days, beginning on Christmas Day and building to a climax on Epiphany. What is Epiphany all about? If you were here on this Sunday last year, you would have heard the answer from Bishop Charlie, who preached last Epiphany. The answer is revelation. The word Epiphany comes from a Greek root word that means to be revealed, to be made manifest in a glorious display. Epiphany is about the public revelation of who Jesus is. I will be speaking from the essential Epiphany story, at least in the tradition of the Western Church, and that is the visit of the Magi, or wise men, as the ESV calls them. Please have your Bibles open to Matthew chapter 2. It's interesting that the wise men are often talked about or pictured as three kings. Yet in the first two verses of our passage, the wise men are the only people mentioned who are not kings. Take a look at verses 1 and 2. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born King of the Jews. For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. There are two kings mentioned here Herod and Jesus. Herod the Great, as he was known, lived in a palace in Jerusalem. But he is not a legitimate king of the Jews. He is only half Jewish and he is not from the line of David. Rather, he is a puppet king 
put in place by the Romans as a reward for his political loyalty and military accomplishments. He married a Jewish princess to strengthen his claim to the throne. Herod is the strong man whose paranoid reign forms the dark backdrop to the whole chapter. The baby Jesus, on the other hand, lives in humble circumstances, yet he is the legitimate king of the Jews. Matthew chapter 1 has already testified through its opening genealogy and its account of supernatural activity in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy that Jesus is the ultimate king of the Jews, promised of old. From Luke's Gospel, we know that Jesus' birth caused a buzz among shepherds in the Bethlehem area, some eight kilometers away. But it has gone unnoticed in Jerusalem until now, over a year after his birth, when wise men from the east arrive asking where to find him so they can worship him. Verse 3 says, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jeru Jerusalem with him. That Herod was troubled is an understatement. Herod was so threatened by the prospect of this infant rival, one with real legitimacy born in the line of David and announced by a heavenly sign, that he will end up sending armed soldiers to kill all the babies under the age of two in the Bethlehem area in order to destroy this one, or try to destroy this one. I'm going to speak to four topics. First, the wise men, who I will call by their more descriptive name, Magi, from now on. Second, the star that led them to Jesus. Third, the gifts they gave him. And fourth, their joy in finding him. That's the Magi, the star, the gifts, and the joy. So first, the Magi. The Magi were not kings. They were more like king makers. They were royal court officials who acted as advisors to kings. Knowledgeable men in matters such as science, agriculture, mathematics, history, and the occult. Respected men of great political and religious influence. The Old Testament book of the prophet Daniel gives us insight into who the Magi in our passage likely were. The prophet Daniel was one of the Jewish exiles taken captive in Babylon. This happened around 600 years before Jesus was born, when King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon conquered Judah. At that time, the monarchy descended from David that had reigned in Jerusalem for 400 years finally collapsed. After that, there were no more kings in the line of David only the promise of one, God's enduring promise to David 
that a descendant of his would be anointed by the Holy Spirit and reign over a kingdom of righteousness, justice, and peace forever. The Messiah, or in Greek, the Christ. Josiah talked about all this when he was preaching from the prophet Micah two weeks ago. So Daniel is one of the Jewish exiles taken to serve in the court of the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar. And the Bible tells us Magi were among the king's wise men. One day after Nebuchadnezzar had had a very troubling dream that he could not even describe, he called for the Magi and demanded they first tell him his dream and then tell its meaning. When the Magi could not do this, Nebuchadnezzar threatened to kill them all. But then Daniel stepped in. He sought God about the dream and God revealed it to him together with the interpretation. After this, Nebuchadnezzar spared the lives of all the Magi and made Daniel chief over them. This was a court appointment that would follow Daniel even when the Medes and Persians later took possession of what had been the Babylonian Empire. Kind of like a top civil servant remaining in their position when the government changes. So later, when the Medo-Persian king Darius is tricked into sending Daniel to the lion's den, it's not the Magi who are behind the conspiracy, rather it's the satraps and other high officials who were political administrators, not court wise men. Anyway, Daniel, chief of the Magi in Persia, lived out the rest of his life in exile from his Jewish homeland. Yet his faith in God and God's word endured to the end. He was confident that God would yet fulfill his promise to David in sending the Messiah. And he was confident the Messiah would fulfill God's promise to Abraham to bless all the families of the earth. You can bet that Daniel's faith was a powerful example to the Magi of his time and a powerful encouragement to the faith of the other Jewish exiles, many of whose descendants remained in Persia even after some were permitted to return and rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. The legacy of the faith of Daniel and his fellow exiles explains why even 600 years later there could be magi from the east who believed that someday a great king of the Jews would be born, whose gracious reign of peace would extend to all the world for all time. You know, this is a, a great reminder to us of the influence that a life lived by faith can have, even generations in the future. The particular Magi who come looking for Jesus in our passage in Matthew 2 are stargazers, 
knowledgeable about astronomy and astrology, which would not have been separate disciplines at that time. They studied the lights in the heavens in order to gain wisdom about matters on earth. And they saw a sign in the heavens of such significance they believed it could only mean the great king of the Jews had been born. And although they were not themselves kings, they clearly had the resources of kings because they were able to afford the time and expense for the long journey from Persia to the land of the Jews in search of this newborn king. And they brought valuable gifts with them as well. Our passage does not say how many magi there were, but because they brought three gifts, it became common to speak of them and picture them as three. Magi is a plural word, so there were at least two, but there could have been many more than three. And there would have certainly been a significant company of servants traveling with them, given all the provisions they had to bring for the journey. This was not a group that could keep a low profile in entering Jerusalem. Now let's move on from the Magi to the star. The Magi explained their quest for the newborn king of the Jews by saying to people in Jerusalem, in verse 2, We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. They saw the star when it rose, but at some point after that it seems to have disappeared. And without it, they had to default to go to Jerusalem and ask for help. The folks in Jerusalem don't know anything about a star or the recent birth of Messiah, and they don't seem to like the implications of the Magi's visit or their news. But the Bible scholars among them, the chief priests and scribes whom Herod hastily convenes, do know what the Magi don't. Verses 4 to 6. When Herod asks them where the Christ was to be born, they tell him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet Micah, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. At that point, Herod arranges a secret meeting with the Magi. In exchange for the information they want to know, that Bethlehem is the place, he gets from them the information he wants to know, when the star appeared. Verses 7 and 8. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word, that I too may come and worship him. The beginning of verse 9 says, The Magi listened to Herod. They listened to learn the prophesied birthplace of Messiah, and they listened to Herod's order that they report back to him. 
so he too could come and worship. They listened to the order, but the Bible stopped short of saying they agreed to it. And later in verse 12, after the warning of a dream, they avoid Herod and go home by a different route. But back to verse 9. When the Magi leave Jerusalem for Bethlehem, the star reappears and guides them to the very house where they find Jesus. It's hard to imagine how a star or any natural phenomenon in the heavens, like a supernova, a comet, or the alignment of a couple of planets, could do this. Of course, God is quite able to use anything in the natural order of his creation to serve his purposes. But the text of our passage suggests there is something supernatural about this star and the visit of the Magi in general. The hint is in the word behold, which Matthew uses six times in chapters one and two of his gospel. Once to underline the miracle of Jesus' conception by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary, three times to announce angelic visitors who give Joseph direction and twice in our passage. First in verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. And then in verse 9. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. This is no ordinary star. And the visit of the Magi is no ordinary visit of foreign dignitaries to the capital city of Israel. These things are part of the supernatural events surrounding the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Magi are not here by accident. They are here by God's design that Jesus, the Messiah and Savior of the world, might be revealed. Now, if you stop and think about this, it is pretty remarkable that these folks figure so prominently in God's plans for the introduction of Jesus. They are Gentiles who did not know God, yet God uses their knowledge of and devotion to finding answers in the stars to lead them. And they come and worship God incarnate in the Lord Jesus Christ. Not only as the King of the Jews, but as the King of Kings. Meanwhile, the leaders and priests of God's own people have tuned God out. They don't know anything is happening until these foreigners arrive with God's fingerprints all over them. The fact that Herod sends the Magi on to find Jesus rather than sending his own spies to do so suggests that his own wise men 
have no understanding of the means God has used to guide these Gentiles to his Messiah. God cultivated a very special relationship with these Magi and drew them to himself. And there is no doubt God is doing similar things today. It's a reminder for us to pray that persons of every nation, tribe, language, and people group would respond to what God is doing to draw them to himself. And it's a reminder for us to be always on mission, to be ready, to be part of how God is answering our prayers. Let's move now from the star to the gifts. When the Magi finally find the one they have been seeking, they fall down in worship and offer valuable gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And God uses these gifts to reveal the identity of Jesus and his purpose in coming. God uses these gifts prophetically to reveal Jesus' identity and mission. The first gift was gold, because Jesus is king, the king of kings, actually. The second gift was frankincense, because Jesus is God, and incense was integral to the worship of God in the temple at Jerusalem. And the third gift is myrrh a perfumed ointment used for embalming a person's body after they die because Jesus came to die, to give his life as the perfect sacrifice that atones for our sins that we might be redeemed for eternal life with God. All the stories of the Christmas season, from the angel appearing to Mary and then to Joseph, and then a host of angels appearing to the shepherds, and finally the star leading the Magi. All these stories send the clear message that Jesus has come for everyone. He has come for the women and the men, the poor and the rich, the simple and the learned, the near and the far, the Jew and the Gentile. But as wonderful as Jesus coming for everyone is, it means nothing if we don't understand who he is and why he came. An epiphany is not just about God revealing Jesus to the Magi as representatives of the wider Gentile world. It is also about God revealing Jesus through the Magi to the world in the symbols represented by their gifts. Both the song, Joy Has Dawned, that we sang earlier, and the song that we will be singing, We Three Kings, use the Magi's gifts to tell of Jesus' identity and mission. I've lost count of the number of times I've used the Magi's gifts to explain to children and to international students, to people new to the Bible and Christianity, and really to anyone who will listen, who Jesus is and why he came. So that's the gifts. 
Finally, we move on to the joy. I don't know about you, but I've heard and read and studied the account of the visit of the Magi many, many times. So I want to end by sharing with you what really stood out for me this time. It was the joy of the Magi. And I confess it may be because I wasn't feeling very joyful that this really spoke to me. Look at verse 10. The star has just reappeared to guide the Magi. And verse 10 says, When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. It is easy to miss the force of this verse in English. It is much more obvious in the original Greek, where one word would suffice, four words are used to tell us that the Magi rejoiced. It's like this. There is a verb that says they rejoiced. Then there is a noun added to say they rejoiced with joy. In English, this just sounds redundant. I mean, what else are you going to rejoice with? But in Greek, it accentuates their rejoicing. Then there is an adjective added to say that they rejoiced not just with joy, but with great joy. And finally, there is an adverb added to make the act of their rejoicing with great, this great joy something that the Magi do with maximum intensity. Some other English versions translate this verse like this. They rejoiced with overwhelming joy. They were thrilled with ecstatic joy. They were beside themselves with joy and excitement. Their joy knew no bounds. Get the picture? They were bursting with joy. And the question, as Keith would always ask, is why? Why were they so joyful? As I thought about why this week, my thoughts turned to two very short parables later in Matthew's Gospel, the parable of the hidden treasure and the parable of the pearl of great price. In the first parable, a man finds by accident a treasure of incalculable value buried in a field, and he sells everything in order to buy the field. In the second parable, a man searches for a pearl of great value, and when he finds it, he sells everything and buys it. In both cases, whether by accident or by seeking, that ultimate treasure is found. And very happy indeed is the one who trades everything else to possess it. The Magi are like both men. Like the first man, while far away in their own land, they cannot have known what to search for or where. But then they happen upon an unimaginable revelation, a star 
that claims to announce the birth of the Savior of the world. And they pull out all the stops and use all their resources to undertake the journey to go and worship him. Like the second man, their journey is a long search over which hangs the question, will they ever actually find him? The star that announced his birth disappears from their sight. Their other sources of information about him are incomplete and old, having been handed down for generations. The Magi have never been where they are going, and when they get there, they must ask directions from people who ought to, but do not seem to, share their passion to find him. The Magi are not tourists in the great city of Jerusalem. Instead, they pass right through, never to return, once they learn that the Nowheresville of Bethlehem is where they will find him. Is it any wonder, then, that when the star once more rises to guide them to his very house, they rejoice exceedingly with great joy, a joy that is consummated when they at last behold him and worship him? It's what they were made for. It's what we are all made for. Because God made us for himself. And our chief end is to glorify him and enjoy him forever. As we've heard many times in our series in the book of Hebrews, salvation is a place. The place where God dwells. And we dwell with him forever. So in this new year and new decade, when much is happening that is not joyful and much conspires to steal our joy in the Lord and so to cause us to drift away from what God has spoken to us by his Son incarnate, may God grant to us to be strengthened by grace and to persevere together in the journey of faith. And may God give us a revelation, a vision of our destination, of life with Him in joy that knows no bounds and no end. Amen.